Wildish is a story about the humans tangled in the world of wild horse management, activists aching for the animals to be wild, those who see them as invasive, and the people with the Bureau of Land Management faced with balancing the horse as a relic of Wild West heritage, along with its impact on the landscape. From High Country News, in collaboration with Alan Warda's Media, I'm Anna Coburn, and this is Wildish. I don't need to tell you that we live in a very divisive time in the United States. And you don't need to hear that we have a lot of problems we have to sift through. But what if I added one more to your plate? What if I asked you to consider one more? I mean, there's so much misinformation out there. You don't see the full story. It's starting to become the image of bureaucratic inefficiency at great expense. I needed to experience what other people had told me. No, we, we don't violate the law. I can't be emotional. It is an interest of all Americans. So we have a responsibility. I did not care for the way tax dollars are being spent. Welcome to the Wild West. Well, it doesn't seem exactly wild. At least not anymore. The population in Colorado alone is supposed to grow up to 7 million people by 2040. But outside of the office buildings and the houses and the tourist attractions, the West is still wild. It's jagged and it's beautiful. There are long stretches of highway without any cell phone service. There are places you don't want to get lost. And the elements, they're always out to get you. The West I'm talking about is from Colorado to California, from Montana to Arizona from New Mexico to Oregon. And it has its own set of unique problems. And one of the biggest headaches, if you ask people who know about it, is the issue of wild horses and wild donkeys, or burros in Spanish, that live out here on the range. For a master's project last summer, I traveled all over the West to talk to different people about wild horses and burros and ask them why it's a problem and what we can do about it. So, alone in my kitchen, I produced a podcast during the coronavirus pandemic. Groundbreaking. My name is Anna, and this is Wildish. And I hope you go on this wildish ride with me. Now, if you didn't know anything about wild horses, you're not alone. I didn't either. In fact, my only education about wild horses was from the movie Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron from DreamWorks that came out in 2002 when I was a kid. You know, the one where Matt Damon narrates it and the horse has perfectly shaped eyebrows. But it's all really fascinating. We've had wild horses and burros here in the United States since the Spanish conquistadors came over. They were everywhere. But like the story of most things in the American West, their numbers began to dwindle. It literally took an act of Congress to get these wild horses and burros protected in 1971. The Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, was tasked to manage these horses and burros. The BLM set a carrying capacity number, or limit, to 27,000 animals across the West. But now we are long past that threshold. In Nevada by itself today, 
there are 45,000 of them. Across roughly 10 states, there are upwards of 100,000. So what do you do with all those horses and burros? You gather them up off of the rangelands. And the most effective way to do it, according to the BLM, is by helicopter. And a lot of people really don't like that. They've made helicopter contractors multimillionaires a dozen, two dozen times over, and seem bent on these very dangerous and harmful ways to manage wild horses. That's Ginger Catherine's. She's the founder and executive director of the Cloud Foundation, a wild horse advocacy group based out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. BLM has never embraced humane management of wild horses. They think it's too hard. Tracy Scott, the co-founder of Steadfast Steeds, a Mustang sanctuary outside of Grand Junction, Colorado, tells us what happens next. After horses are, are gathered from the ranges, um, they are offered for public adoption. And if there are horses that go to the public adoption right off the range and they are not adopted, they go to what's called short-term holding. And a short-term holding facility is, a, is dirt lots. Um, they're predominantly in the 10 Western states where the horses live on the ranges. They are all separated from their families into mares in, in age-appropriate pens, geldings, because the stallions are castrated when they come off the ranges. Um, it's mandated in the law. And so gelding pens sorted by ages, and then the babies are all gone, go into a baby pen. That's short-term holding. It, once they've been in the short-term holding facility and been passed up for adoption three times, or they're over the age of seven, I believe, um, and they haven't been adopted yet, they go to long-term holding, which is in the Midwest. And the pastures are fence-to-fence grass, which is not what their bodies are used to. All boys in pastures and all girls in pastures. They don't get to be families ever again. And that's what the holding facilities offer them, which is kind of base, it's a base existence. It's not the way a wild horse would want to live its life. Several years ago, the BLM asked the National Research Council Committee to look at the Wild Horse and Burrow Program. The National Academy of Sciences published a modest 384-page report, at least the version I have, on their findings. Here are a few sentences from that report. Adoption demand does not balance the number of animals removed, and there is no political support for culling unadopted animals. Therefore, BLM pays for animals removed from the range to live in long-term holding pastures for the remainder of their lives. This was published in 2013. In the fiscal year of 2019, $57 million went into feeding and taking care of these horses and burros in these holding facilities. That's well over half the program's $80 million budget. For 2021, they're getting $116 million. That's an insane amount of money. And of course, it's coming from taxpayers. That's your money. That's my money. There are around 50,000 horses and donkeys in these holding facilities. Ask any horse person or donkey person. Just one is a lot. So obviously, this is not a sustainable plan. We can't keep, as I've heard it quoted, storing the horses and donkeys in these holding facilities. It's way too expensive. So why not leave them alone? 
It's what some activists want. I joined a couple of Wild Horse activist Facebook groups, and man, do a couple of them hate the government. One lady I follow consistently posts that the BLM are tyrannical, evil, sadistic maniacs. Though the National Academy of Sciences report criticizes the BLM and how their carrying capacity numbers aren't really backed by science, it does say leaving the animals alone to be wild isn't what we should do either. Quote, the consequences of simply letting horse populations, which increase at a mean annual rate approaching 20%, expand to the level of self-limitation, bringing suffering and death due to disease, dehydration, and starvation accompanied by degradation of the land, are also unacceptable. End quote. In conclusion, we have wild horses and burrows that live in the western United States, and the program put in place to manage their numbers is, well, it's a mess. <laughs> And you're probably starting to think poorly of the people who run this program, but I'm here to remind you that people are people, and they get up, and they drink their coffee, and they put on their uniform, and they go to work. Many days I walk into work and have no idea what my day will yield. And they know how much they are hated. Obviously, this program is, I mean, of all of BLM's programs that BLM manages and oversees, this is probably one of the most politically sensitive programs in the Bureau from the public's perspective. There's a lot of opinions. I've been speaking to Bruce Rittenhouse for the past two years. He's the acting division chief of the Wild Horse and Burrow program in Washington, D.C. I've always appreciated his honesty and willingness to talk to me, even from the very beginning when I thought this subject would be easy to talk about. It's not. It's a world where nobody really likes anybody. The, there's the advocate side and the activist side who don't support anything we do to those groups that are, are real strong partners with us and others who are on the other side of the coin and want us to aggressively more manage more, but they have no idea about what the daily uh, life is in the, in the program. That's really important. I wanted to talk to people with their boots in the sagebrush. People who experience wild horses and burrows on a daily basis, whether it's working for the program, taking pictures, being an advocate, ranching, adopting, whatever it is, I wanted to talk to those people. I didn't want to talk to people who fall for anything they see on Facebook and get outraged. I mean, there's so much misinformation out there. There's a lot of information that gets put on the internet that is not cross-referenced or corroborated by or cross-checked. You know, we, we don't violate the law. We don't break the law. I mean, so we're doing it all under our, our policies and regulations and, and the statutes. So, you know, I just think it's that kind of thing when they accuse you of things like that. And, and one of the things I always try to tell myself in the job is that I can't be emotional. It seems like we have a lot of people that... I think they actually, you know, hope for bad things to happen just so they can witness it and which will then help them drive donations for their program. A few horses um, on a gather that's ongoing right now, just this past weekend and late last week, um, the horses were coming into the trap and uh, about six or seven horses kind of veered off and broke a fence ran through a barbed wire fence, of course, and then I get to work this morning and there's like 15 emails from people and, you know, claiming the horror and the, the, you know, the atrocities that we've done. And, you know, the horses, 
were all safe. They were all removed. They had, you know, we had a veterinarian check them, you know, so they see that, but they don't see the full story. And, you know, they talk about our, our brutal, our brutal gathers, you know, helicopter gathers where thousands of horses die. I mean, you know, you know, a lot of horses die and, you know, so, I mean, and that's not even near the truth. But there's always room for change. We have to hold our systems accountable. And if you go down the right rabbit holes, the BLM has done some really sketchy things. I know the, the BLM has made, I would say, several mistakes in this program. When we do have to do population control, we remove them in the what we feel is the most humane manner possible. That when they come into our care, we try to place them into good homes. Uh, and if they don't get placed into good homes, we we care for them for the rest of their lives at taxpayer expense, granted. And I, I, I make that clear that because some people say, You're, you, you feed 48,000 horses? I said, yes, we do, at about the tune of 50 to $60 million a year. But it is pretty, it is a very emotional issue. There's that, you know, tie between horses and humans that have been through our history of humanity. And, you know, it's interesting. They, you know, a lot of the advocates don't really uh, have that same same emotional link with, you know, domestic horses in some ways, race horses. I mean, you know, the racing industry is more brutal than, than we, would ever, would, we would ever think of being. But we need advocacy in every situation. We need people who are passionate, who aren't afraid to stick it to the man. But in the BLM's defense, I can understand how frustrating it can be when it feels like everything you do will be attacked. When your hands are tied and it's all up to the people in Washington, D.C. to make these decisions. I used to be a park ranger, and sometimes getting a new stapler in the office seemed like an act of legislation itself. So what do you do when no one's really right and no one's really wrong either? Across the board, across the spectrum, everyone can agree that the way that we manage wild horses and burrows needs to change. It's emotional because just like we love our dogs, we love our horses and our donkeys. We can't forget the donkeys. These animals have evolved with us over time, and in the United States, the wild ones represent a heritage. I think who says it best is David Phillips, the author of Wild Horse Country, the history, myth, and future of the Mustang. This was the first book I read when I started researching this issue. Dave is also a reporter for the New York Times. He researched this topic for years. Dave said something really cool when I asked him about the relationship between wild horses and American history. More than any animal, I think, the wild horse or the Mustang embodies what Americans think of as, as their own story. Technically, the animal that represents America is the bald eagle, but that's really a symbol of federal power. It's aloof, it's regal, it is not necessarily the rest of us. But the wild horse is an immigrant, like all of us, or nearly all of us, and the wild horse has no pedigree. It has no special breeding. It is not of the gentry. You know, like, like most of us or our, our, our uh, ancestors who came here, it came with very little and, and made what it has out of, of you know, just being able to, to survive with what's given. That's, that's a really powerful idea in the United States, you know, that, 
it has freedom because it earned it, not because it was given any title or, or had an important lineage. That's the American story, that we are all here and we can make it you know, if we have, have the smarts and the toughness. And so in a real way, as America sort of made itself and told stories to itself about what it was, the wild horse emerged as, as a kind of mascot. If you think about it, the, the cowboy is maybe the other most American character. The cowboy's uh, best friend and closest ally is always the wild horse. The cowboy never rides a fancy thoroughbred. He always rides some horse that he got off the range, and usually it's a horse that would only submit to him because he was noble. So there's this idea, and it's a very democratic American idea. We will submit only to the deserving, you know, that we have, have a government and a society that is just and moral, and that is why we are part of it. But at any point, we totally maintain our fierce independence, and we could run off back onto the prairies, you know. But the wild horse is the, the blood and bone symbol of that idea, that, that we submit to living in this just society, even though at heart we are liberated and free. When Dave initially told me this, it made a lot of sense because it fits with the most typically told American story of pioneers and manifest destiny, but that's only one part of American history. To some people, wild horses don't mean anything. They're not a symbol. They're not part of their heritage. To some people, the American story is completely different. In our next episode, we will talk about what it is about wild horses that we find so enticing. And what is life like for a wild horse out on the range? That's next time. The horse was put together with different aspects. The mane and the tail are considered rain. And then the frog of the hoof is an arrowhead, which is um, protection in our culture. Everybody wants their history to be understood and passed on and respected. And trying to figure out how to balance everybody's history with one another is incredibly challenging. Even the name wild is controversial because they're feral. That's a domesticated species. The series Wildish was made possible by Alan Wardas Media, Brigham Young University's Charles Red Center, Western Colorado University's Graduate Studies and Master in Environmental Management program, the Margie and John Haley Fund, and Dr. Corey Knapp. A big thank you to High Country News for publishing Wildish, and you for listening. Please rate Wildish wherever you get your podcasts.